Hi, it's Alex Langshire, and welcome to another episode of What I Wish I Known, the Google Partners podcast. So typically on our podcast, I ask our guests what they wish they'd known about a particular subject or aspect of working in or running an agency. My idea is that if they could go back in time, what would be the top five things that they'd tell their younger self to focus on now that they have the benefit of hindsight? Today is going to be a little bit more freeform and a return to basics because I thought it'd be interesting to invite to the podcast someone who's pretty much at the top of their game to riff off our central theme and just take it in any direction that they want. So I've invited Mitch Joel, president of the digital marketing agency Miram, veteran podcaster, blogger, and speaker on all things related to the digital economy to our podcast. So among Mitch's many accomplishments are writing two books, the most recent being Control-Alt-Delete. He's been named rock star of digital marketing by Marketing Magazine. He's co-founded a rock label, a music label, I should say. He shared the speaking stage with none other than Richard Branson. Uh, he's got board-level involvement with multiple marketing associations. In addition to both of us sharing a path and for all things digital, Mitch also hails from my hometown of Montreal. So I think it's only fitting to say bienvenue au podcast, Mitch. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great. So, Mitch, I gave you a little bit of an intro there, but um, I'd love to hear the backstory and uh, from your own perspective. And maybe what could you tell our listeners about yourself? Um, always wanted to be a music journalist and had a chance to do so in my teenage years. Um, that was probably the mid to late 80s. Wound up publishing rock music magazines, wound up writing for a bunch of music magazines. And at that time, the internet was just starting. I mean, first web browser. And I had sort of tangentially been very involved with technology in the home. So I'd had one of the first Atari computers and going all the way back to Pong and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, it was just the convergence of that sort of media lifestyle that I was running, running and, and publishing and digital technology that came together for me. Um, I wound up uh, helping to build a sales channel for one of the first uh, search engines on the net long before Google existed. I was working in mobile content marketing before there was even a mobile web browser, let alone smartphones. And as you said, yeah, I got back into the music industry for a short while with the record label and then just decided that I still had more of an affinity towards digital media and digital marketing. And that's when I'd met uh, two of my partners who had launched uh, an agency here in Montreal that we grew, joined by a third part, uh, fourth partner rather later on. We grew the business. Uh, we sold it to WPP in 2014. And I'm still... Um, the president of this agency, which is now a lot bigger because we took a bunch of other agencies and brought them all together and all of us rebranded as Miram. And in between that, you know, I started blogging in early days at a space called Six Pixels of Separation that I developed and doing a weekly podcast out of that, doing some public speaking, writing the books. And, you know, that journey has been going on since 2002, where I still publish frequently and frenetically, as I like to say. So there's a number of things I want to ask you about that before we begin. One of the things is you scored your first interview with Tommy Lee. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And, and and like I think you're like a Cameron Crowe because you, you're like, what, 17, 18 when you scored that? Yeah, I was. It's funny. You know, Cameron Crowe and I have, have never met. We've never communicated, but we, have, we led very tangential lives in different generations. So 
for what Cameron Crowe was probably to the sort of 70s, I was to the 80s. Like I literally wrote for Circus Magazine as Cameron did. We had this – the same owner was there, this guy Jerry. And Jerry would often say like, God, you remind me so much of Cameron in the 70s. But just I was more of a sort of 80s, 90s rock guy. So so yeah, it was it was pretty similar. The, the backstory actually has a tech slant to it, which is again, I had, I had been involved in you know we had in our home Atari, Pong, an yeah. Atari 800 computer, and so I was in the really early days of word processing, and I wound up meeting an individual who was writing for a very large yeah. teen magazine, but he didn't know how to type, and so he'd literally come over in my basement, and I would like type up his articles for him. And then on, on WordStar was one of those. I don't even. I mean, I think I, I want to say WordPerfect. It was probably WordPerfect, like early days of of, of home yeah, PCs. Yeah. And as a thank you, he agreed to take me to go see a bunch of concerts. It was around in and around New Year's Eve. And on the way to to the show, we were traveling from Montreal to Toronto. Uh, we were told that oh, Tommy Lee is in town promoting. At the time, I think it was the Doctor Feelgood album, and uh, you, you know, you guys should go over and interview him. And the guy just looked at me and said, "Why you're a big Molly Crew fan? Why don't you do it?" And so that wound up being my first real interview. So, and that actually led me to writing the piece. He was like, "Why don't you write the piece?" And then the editor of the magazine sort of, I think, just liked the idea that it was like this big national full color glossy teen magazine and actually having a teen write for it uh he, yeah. i think the person thought it was pretty cool um and i did too i mean you know there's no, no. I, you, my joke at the time was they could have paid me nothing because whatever they would have paid me i just would have spent on concert tickets and t-shirts and music anyways and so the fact that like all of that became accessible to me and i was getting money was just the craziest thing in the world to me it's like mad yeah it's awesome right. uh, well, you know, and the other thing I wanted to ask uh, before we begin here is, you know, you you unpacked a fairly extensive, um, you know, list of things that you do. And as somebody who, you know, does a lot of things, running an agency, uh, doing this podcast, uh, working with staff, uh, working with associations, you know, I find, and also having a family, and that's one of the things you didn't, didn't quite mention is I also know you have a family. It, it uh, it's a tremendous amount of energy out. And so I guess, you know, going to the idea of rebooting yourself, I mean, how do you stay on top of it all and, and do it uh, to such a high level? Like what is, I want to say, is there a secret, but what is, let's say, the algorithm that you use to, to make it all happen? Well, I think, you know, having someone like you say, you know, do it all, being on top of it, it's, uh, I don't feel that. You know, I don't I don't feel or see that or think that I, I, I look to others and think, why am I so lazy? And I see other people doing so much more and being so much more connected, engaged and doing stuff. So I think it's perspective to, to be candid yeah. with you. Like I, it's always easier or nicer when someone else says it about you. I'm, I tend to probably have more deeper self-esteem issues that won't allow me to be like, yeah, you're right. I totally am awesome. And I should. And I, let me tell you how I do that. I, I don't. I don't feel that way. I, you know, I'm a, I come from, you know, first, second generation immigrants uh, to, to this country, uh, very hard work ethic. And I just think that if you're going to do something, it should be something that you like to do. As you said, I have a really young family. And if I'm going to spend eight, sometimes 10, sometimes more hours away from them a day, it better count, better mean something. It better be part of what I really yeah. want to do. And I think because I, I maybe had a taste of the ability to do things that are of interest to you and generated income from such a young age, I think it made me somewhat bulletproof or immune to thinking otherwise. 
And so I never had in myself that thing of, you know, work shouldn't be something you love to do that you could achieve at scale. I just mm -hmm. always thought that that's how it was because I was young and stupid and naive and had an opportunity that I capitalized on and I just didn't stop. Um, I've had my moments in life where, you know, I've been fired or a job didn't work out or I didn't like something and I've had to make a change and those are, are, are never easy. Um, but I don't think I have an, uh, an algorithm. I don't think I have any sort of formula that I think I could pass on to anybody as a sort of like, come on, pull it together. The only thing that I think I do have is a philosophy or an ethos. And my ethos is mm -hmm. that, you know, life is like, a three-legged stool and the three legs of that stool are your your family friends your professional life and your community life and while my stool can sometimes be unbalanced and tip over i try and use that as my barometer you know am i doing enough for the community locally nationally internationally am i spending enough time with family friends am i achieving what i want to achieve professionally and i i then tend to to try my best to not be so hard on myself. And I think that that's probably my worst qualities. I'm very hard on myself. So yeah. um, I think that that's the sort of bigger thing that I, you know, if, if anybody's looking at their life, it would be, you know, what are you doing in your community? What are you doing professionally? What are you doing personally? And, and is there an equal balance? If there is, you know, you win. Well, you know, Covey talks along those lines as well. Um, yeah, about being being engaged and where we're going to be intentional with our time. But I, I want to just uh, ask you about, you mentioned self-esteem and what drives us. I'm always fascinated by, do people who are high performers feel uh, drawn towards things or do they feel pushed towards those things? Maybe it's not a dichotomous question, but if I put it to you, where would you feel you fall in those lines? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, and I don't. I, I for sure agree that I don't think it's a sort of you know successful people all do this. I don't. I don't. I don't really buy into that at all. It's a tough question to answer because I. I think I tend to look at things as, how long will this project take? If it, if it's a for a client, if it's a speaking event, if it's a an article to write, if it's a podcast I have to record, and is that where I want to put my energy? And there are some parts of life where no, it's not, but I have to. <laughs> we we no, all yeah. have that. The must do, you know. And then there's parts where I'm, you know, I question, you know, energy and time. A great example of that would be, you know, video. If you think about what's happened in content, I sort of have put a flag in the ground for the two forms of content I think I like to do most: text long form and audio long form. Mm. And that's not the sexiest place to be in, in this world of Snapchat and Twitter and YouTube and Facebook Live. And there are others who are in the similar sort of pot as I am who have ascended, you know, 10x, 13x, 20x in terms of audience size and attention and et cetera, et cetera. And it's easy to, to look at that and go, oh, like, what am I doing wrong? I actually don't. I, I look at that and go, I wonder how much my discernible market is. And I think it's obviously significantly bigger than it is today. 
just off of what I want to do? And how do I just make sure that if I'm going to invest an hour in a conversation for, let's say, an audio podcast, that it is something of value? I don't want to do tossaways. And I think, again, my background in traditional publishing, where every page counted because there was such a cost and expense to right. creating content and publishing it and distributing it and then getting remunerated for it, that, like, you know, I always say, like, I suck at Twitter because of that. I'm just not willing to tweet out if it's just a useless, you know, just to sort of do it to feed the machine, as it were. So I think you sort of, at least I sort of figure out where I'm going to put that time and energy, not based off of what comes in or what comes out, but, you know, overall, how's it going to add value? And most of the time, the truth is people, people think, that, oh, you know, he speaks on the side and he writes on the side and he does radio on the side, but all of it is driven into Miram. And it was like that when it was uh, an entrepreneurial endeavor, a company that myself, and my three business partners owned. And it's like that today where it's owned by a, a, the world's largest multi-conglomerate in marketing, WPP. And mm -hmm. you know, all of all of the revenue from speaking, media, books, et cetera, goes into the company. People are somewhat surprised to hear that, but it is what they bought. They did buy this, this sort of branded platform that we created around content marketing. And I want them to, I want them to have it. I mean, I want them to have it, you know, I want them to have the spirit of that, the, of why I'm, I'm here to create, you know, that level of content and that level, level of connectivity with people. And so I, I see it more like, you know, right now it's for sure, you know, work versus building, but you're still building, you know, you, there's, there's always an opportunity to maybe not be an entrepreneur as I, I'm not today, but entrepreneurial within the organization. And so I think about it from that perspective, is this an entrepreneurial endeavor that excites me? And adds value. And that might be a good segue to asking you, um, so Mitch, what would be the top five things that you would tell your, your younger Mitch self if this is uh, winding the clock back, you know, a decade or so? You know, one would be to, to take more chances. I think I was, I think I'm a very analytical person and detail oriented. And I, I just wish I would have asked out a couple of the girls that I sort of you know what I mean? Like you sort of go through your brain and go like, why would she like me? And, and, and just sort of now living in a world as you get older, more mature where, and that is a good metaphor, like just asking the person out, asking, you know, permission, may I, can I, asking those types of questions. One, I think uh, that would be number one for me is asking those types of questions that might, might've led me down an, a path that, and I, I didn't ask them just out of, out of fear of, of, of rejection. Well, I was going to say, so let's, let's bring this into an agency context, right? So if we think of a lot of our listeners, many of them are entrepreneurs starting off uh, smaller size agencies. And one of the things which I see with a lot of these individuals when I speak with them is that there's a, there's a fear about putting yourself out there, there's a, which is the hard work of, you know, making those connections, uh, uh, suffering rejection, not taking that chance perhaps to reach out to somebody who you may have intimidation through either the title that they hold or the company that they have. Would this taking more chances, which I think is a fantastic point, extend into that? And can you share any stories about that in a work environment? Yeah, I mean... I think there are always questions. The classic example I would give is, you know, you sit down with a new business development opportunity. So they're on the client side and they're in a very specific industry. Maybe it's highly regulated. Maybe it's complex. Maybe it's just they have their own vernacular and they start, they're, they're very smart people and they start spouting off all these acronyms and things and everyone sort of sits there and nods and makes comments. And I was the guy that said, sorry, what's an NDA? Like, I don't, 
I don't know, what, what is that? Like, what, what do you, you know? Um, and the fear would be, well, if I look like I don't know, the client's going to think they don't know my industry and how good are they going to be? I, I never had that. I sort of, again, I guess that's the journalist person in me that just doesn't leave where I'm always like more curious about questions. And I guess because I ask it in an honest and sincere way, you know, my attitude is always, well, if, if they don't want to hire us because I don't know what one of their like industry acronyms is, I mean, that's a bit silly and stupid, isn't it? I mean, is that really a true partner? So, you know, that would be the, you know, a simplistic example of that. Well, you know, if I, if I think about taking more chances, one of the things that, how this resonates to me is that I recognize it's, it's less about me, that if the, if there is a rejection that you get, whether it's uh, somebody that you're interested in, whether it's an opportunity that you might want to pursue with whatever it might be, um, the rejection isn't really about me and I don't take it personally. And, and, you know, we talked about self-esteem a little bit earlier on. It, it won't affect my self-esteem. It doesn't have that, that uh, blow that I may have had at an earlier age. And, and I, I don't know if there's an accelerant to that, but uh, I think the I, I feel those two are linked, and I'd like your opinion on that. Yeah, I don't. Again, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. I don't I don't know if, if 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 that's what it is. I think people do look stupid in meetings, and people do say stupid things all the time. Um, and I think there's a big difference between being prepared and being astute and doing your best, and then asking honest questions versus making assumptions. Uh, asking just to ask, um, I think that right. I think that there there can be a thing where it is it is you and not them. So I just yeah. you know again and maybe that's just more of the way I think. Yeah, and maybe that's the shield that you the armor that you wear that enables you to do it, which is fine. It's just not how I see yeah. things. I mean, I definitely sat in meetings with people who, you know, are like well, you know, the, if if you were just, you know that sort of like it, it becomes a bit of like a pushy heavy sales yeah. thing because the person just has it in their brain, this sort of like bulletproof mantra of if they reject, they don't reject me. Well, actually they are. They're rejecting your ideas. They're rejecting the way you communicate them. They're rejecting the way you present yourself. They're, they are rejecting you and your ideas. And again, maybe that's not a healthy way for me to be, but I find that it is thinking like that prior, during, and after that, yeah. you know, the, the sort of stress or anxiety of it is, is a two-way street. It's bad because it can kill you, but it's also good because it shows you really care and it shows you're putting the effort. And, you know, I don't know if I would be able to put in the effort I put into things if my attitude was if, they're, if they reject me, they're not rejecting me. I think what actually drives me is the fact that I think they are outright rejecting me and I don't want them to. And so I, I, I have to make it either work in that room or recognize that maybe it wasn't the right fit because of me or, or other factors. All right. Well, interesting. Let's go to the your second point. What's your second point that you tell your younger self? Read. Uh, just to read. I, I really came into, I'm a massive reader. I, I read a ton all the time and not just tweets. I mean, like really, you know, powerful books and I love mostly nonfiction. And I really only came to that, you know, when I got out of school and I definitely am a college slash university dropout. I uh, started my own entrepreneurial stuff in, in the magazine business, as we talked about earlier. But I only came to reading uh, nonfiction and, and business books and things like that through an employer of mine years later, this guy, Andy Nullman, who sort of slid across the desk. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Andy slid across the desk uh, a Tom Peters book, and that just sent me on a tailspin of amazing authors and reading. And I just 
I do, I sort of look back. I, people say to me, I'm going to go on vacation and catch up on reading. I don't think you can do that. Um, but I know that you definitely can't catch up on the years that, that you lost not reading. And so I think that I would go back to that person and say, I know you're not liking what they're putting in front of you to read, but there's a lot of stuff. Go explore a little bit more. On the reading front, uh, you know, I found, uh, and I, I ask you about this, I, I found that over time, my reading has narrowed down, as you said, to nonfiction, and in particular, a lot of kind of business-related nonfiction. And when I do pick up a book of fiction, I just find that I'm using a completely different muscle. But both of those uh, are, I try not to make them interstitial time, but actual focus time to get through it. So I would totally buy into this idea of reading more when you're at a younger age because it, uh, it's a time you can't get back. Having said that, how do you structure your days to ensure that you're able to get the time to, you know, go through all the stuff that you do go through? Because again, you know, working at the, in the field that we do it, which is so rapidly moving, it requires a lot of consumption of content. I, yeah, I don't know if it's a lot. So, you know, I think it's a quality over quantity thing. So mm -hmm. I don't structure it at all. I just read when I, I'm, I'm probably more of an interstitial reader, I think. I read when there's time. I don't need my chair in that specific room at that hour with that light and that, you know, cup of Earl Grey tea. I don't need that. Um, everything is read primarily on my iPhone. So whether it's Amazon Kindle or, or stuff I'm saving on Pocket is sort of my two go-tos for reading. I guess for, for just sheer pleasure and joy, I'm not ever trying to escape content. And people go like, oh, it's, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up and, you know, it'd be great to just like not look at emails or have to read anything. And I'm like, oh, great. Thanksgiving is coming up. I could spend my time looking at my emails and reading. It's just my attitude and my perspective. And I know it would be easy to you know, transform that into a workaholic. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's the case or not. And if I am a workaholic, I'm somewhat okay with it as long as it's not to the detriment of my community my family and my friends it just means that mm -hmm. i really like that part of my life that professional part of my life so reading for me isn't destination it's uh it can happen anywhere sure. i mean I, I i will read a book of a page or you know a couple swipes on the kindle app in between something if if something was like oh, i just want to finish that or i could go in this for weeks without reading a book because i've got just so much long form content sitting in pocket so i don't again i i think what i'm getting as i get older is a lack of concern of how many and how much how many books have i read how much have you read i i just sort of i'm like you know if i got through one thing today or no things it's fine i'm you know I'm, I'm doing my best i try my day is primarily organized around the meetings that are already booked and so if I'm in a day where there's just a lot of client meetings or a lot of management meetings, uh, less happens. And then there are days that might be lighter. You know, there's an interview here or something there. I try and stuff things in, in between that. I, I, I really try to stay away from uh, being too organized. From, from an agenda, like like have it locked in. And I'm sure many people, maybe the coveys of the world would, would, you know, would shrill at that or the getting things done mm -hmm. type of people. But yep. you know, I managed to get through stuff. And you know, some days I wake up and I want to get in super early and do some writing and do some recording. Some days I want to you know, spend an extra 10 minutes on, on a Headspace app. And I don't, I, again, as I get older, I try not to judge that so much. There's a lot of days left and a lot of things to do. 
Well, I'll share with you that for me, just my perspective on reading, which is aligned with yours, but I found that time has become something that is one of my most precious commodities. And uh, I've discovered audiobooks and listening to them a little bit faster while walking the dog. Um, it kind of accomplishes a couple of things for me, but I, I'm aligned with you on the value of choosing what you're going to spend your time paying attention to really well. And uh, that uh, that the long form of that is is something that, you know, gives you the ability to really dig into it. And it's one of the reasons why the podcast, for example, Six Pixel Separation, the, the length of that and the length of the interview really gives uh, the, the ability to unpack that story or the subject really, really well. Yeah. And, and again, you know, the thing that ties back to reading is that I don't think people say, how do you find all this stuff you want to write about or these people to interview or the things you say on the radio or things you write in a book? And I'm like, I don't. I was sort of like, I don't understand what you mean. Like I have too much stuff. Like I don't even put out, a, I put out only a fraction of the things I'd love to put out. And the reason is it's because I read a lot. And, you know, like uh, I think Susan Orleans, who's a really well-known creative nonfiction writer, said something like reading is reading is research and writing is teaching. And um, it's not easy to write if you haven't done a lot of reading <laughs> or to create. You know, and, 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 so so I, I sort of always think about things in that perspective. Great. Um, what would be your third point? Uh, three, school isn't education. And it, it took me a long time to get there. And you'll still see on Twitter and Facebook, sometimes people create those little images with a quote and it's attributed to me. I don't think I said it. I think I might have said it somewhere and attributed somewhere. it to someone else because I don't think I created this. But I I have been known because I've been asked about, you know, leaving college and, and not sticking with it and not doing all that well in high school either having to be basically dragged through kicking and screaming that you know the sort of pandering joke that I say which I don't think is mine is I never let school get in the way of my education and um, it took me a long time again once I was out of school to reflect on that you know I was a guy where you know in grade five they'd say read animal farm and I'd be like oh I don't like this but I'll read Lord of the Flies and I'd get in trouble and my mother would have to call the teacher and say, like, I don't get it. It's not that he's not reading at all. He chose Lord of the Flies over Animal House, uh, Animal House, over Animal, that would be funny, over Animal Farm. Mm -hmm. and, and, you're, and you're punishing him for actually choosing another piece of fine fiction in a world where the other kids are probably just reading comic books and not doing the work. And it's the same when I, you know, I started to think that when I left college that I, I, I was overcompensating. You know, like, I, you know, if someone hasn't, like, how do I out MBA someone? And the answer right. was like, you have to have an education. So I, I'm, I'm like that, you know, every year I go to the TED conference and I, I, I attend other things, even though I speak at 40 to 60 events as a keynote, there are events that I personally go to for my own education. Uh, there's online resources, there's reading like we talked about. And I just, I just wish that I could have told my younger self that, Everything you learn isn't going to happen by sitting in line in a class with people your age, listening to people who are very tired of the job that they have to do. I think it also reflects uh, the generation that we probably came from. And certainly as a child of immigrant parents myself, I know that there was a certain value and a kind of a stricture about, you know, my father worked at the same company for 40 plus years. Yeah. You know, it's like that was that was the the norm that we were acclimatized and uh, socialized into. But if I come back to this idea of, you know, school is, is 
not necessarily the education, but that life is. I'm not sure. I can say that for myself, this is my fourth career. And when I speak to companies, when we look for people to hire, what we're looking for is adaptability, uh, flexibility, the, uh, the, the bias towards learning, whatever that might be. And, and those skills are uh, not necessarily the ones that schools, even to this day, um, encourage. Uh, there's a, a little bit more of a, of a rote thing. So do you feel that the fact that you had this varied past and that you've started off with a, a journalist background is, is like all those steps led you to where you are? Look, I, I see a lot of people who are struggling. And, and the word struggle is a spectrum. Uh, they are housekeepers. They can't make rent. They got a child that's sick. Things are tough. Their husband got injured at work, blah, 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 blah. I see people my age who have been in the same job and, you know, have, you know, mortgages that are tough to meet, a couple paychecks off, and they're going to be in financial trouble. They got kids, have a happy life, but it's by no means smooth sailing. Uh, it's, yeah. you know, the, the whole shit, you know, shit. yeah. And, and I think there's a rarefied air of people who have managed to achieve a level of financial freedom while at the same time doing things that are of interest to them. And perhaps because it's of interest to them, there's an audience of people paying attention to it. Like, well, that's interesting to me, or how did they do it? I don't know how big of an audience I have around that. And I don't really candidly care, which frustrates people. But what I do care about is that I just want to be able to, to know at the end that it, it wasn't just like a complete struggle. And, and because of that, I think that that creates a higher level of empathy for me in terms of, of the community aspect of it. Um, it's really, it, it's, um, you know, life is tough and hard and we do these podcasts and we do these things and we think, yeah, everybody can, and, you know, you know, hustle and have a side hustle. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just see a, a vast swath of people that are, are so in it that even the best books or motivation or whatever may not get them out of that. And, you know, it's funny, it's like the matrix. I mean, I love the matrix movies and I always, you know, it's not about red pill, blue pill, or green pill. I don't even know which pills they took. Um, I, I do know that I often do look at the world and feel like I don't think I'm in the matrix. Like I think I'm looking into the matrix, going like, I wish I could tell them all it's the matrix. Um, but but that's also like a level of like I don't like that person, and I don't think that person. I don't think that's my job. I don't think that's my calling. For some people, it is their calling to sort of you know shake those cages. I just feel like. You know, I want to be the best I can at inspiring those who are closest around me uh, because of whatever success, as I define it, that I've had, I'm able to contribute back more and ultimately, you know, do, do what I can to be my best me for, for those who are in and around this small little orbit that I, that, that I take part of. All right. Well, uh, Mitch, maybe you can bring us home with your last point. Yeah, my last point would be... Um, push and push i don't mean it in terms of an aggressive movement or uh, being a dominating one i feel like in my life there were many things that i was doing professionally that i sort of let go or didn't hold on to and then later i could look back and go oof there was a lot of things there that would have been great had i just stuck with it 
And I think we're in a, a culture of that. In fact, we, we look at, at certain demographics and think that the entire generation is like that, sort of apathetic. And I don't believe that to be true. But if I could go back, I would tell that person, stick with things for a little bit longer than you think you should. Sometimes you'll be right. Sometimes you'll be wrong. But there's stuff at the other side. And I do believe in that ideology that, you know, sometimes the, at, that, at the hardest friction point, when you push through that, that's where the stuff is. I believe that mm -hmm. to be true. And again, just personally, I had had enough of doing that over my career where when we started this agency, it started in 2000, I joined 2002, my two partners, and then we had the fourth one on. I remember specifically saying to uh, my partner at the time, my girlfriend who became my wife, that I'm going to be like a pit bull on this and I'm not letting go. And I don't know what, what that means. And I didn't know at the time, but unlike other things where I left too early or didn't stick around or didn't really push in certain directions, I'm not going to do that with this one. And I'm glad it worked out and we were able to you know, have it be acquired and still see it grow and, and happily be in this environment with this amazing company called WPP. But I, but that would be the advice is, is, is sometimes maybe go through a bit of the crappier things to see what's on the other side. Look, I, I love this last one, Mitch. Uh, and I'll just share that, you know, people look, uh, I've talked with people and when I do uh, business coaching and, and speak with agencies and they ask, how did things happen? And what I often come away with is there's this feeling that this, is, it just kind of happened. And uh, it doesn't come from me, but I've heard it somewhere else, which is, you know, overnight success, 12 years in the making. Yeah. And the there are some valleys in there. And I've been asked a number of times, uh, and so I, I'll put this to you from people in agencies in particular, is, you know, at what point uh, or what would be some of the things that, you know, helped you say, I'm sticking with this, right? Because there must have been some periods which were tougher than others. And so what were some of the kind of, you know, things that steeled you mentally to, to continue with the push? Because it's hard. I mean, it's hard. It can be hard early on. Yeah, I, I would look back and not necessarily at, at the instance of this agency, but of other instances where I didn't push, where I can be All more right. self-reflective. So, you know, as I said earlier, I was part of this thing called mama.com, which was basically a meta search engine at the time. Google didn't really exist. It was grabbing search results from AOL, Lycos, Yahoo, and trying to create a better search result because we can't imagine this. But back then, search results were really crappy. And we had this bright idea of calling sites that had really good content and positioning them at the top of the search engine. Like, like literally, we would enforce that to do that. And of course, we had the bright idea at the time of well, why don't we charge people for that? And the owner, uh, founder of the search engine was like, you can't do that. You'd be poisoning the well. And this was early days of, of these bidding search results that were literally just you go to a search engine and it was whoever paid the most would be at the top of it, which obviously inevitably became Google AdWords and, and that whole world. And I remember that even the technology person at the company had built a, a sort of ranking search engine just to see if he could do it or they could do it rather as a team of people and they executed on it. And I remember thinking like, I should just like sort of like, like bail this company and, and, and work on that. And I didn't, I was sort of like, nah, you know, this is a good job. It pays me well. I'm still selling digital advertising here. I'm getting, you know, and it was, it was a great experience to this day. It's one of the, the, the most amazing experiences that I had professionally. But again, like I, now I look back and think, what if I pushed, what if I had done it? Where would we have been? Who knows? Um, 
you know, another instance of those right before joining the agency, I'd started this record label with a partner in Toronto and we had signed a couple artists and uh, I was excited about it, but I was more excited about digital media. And I was in a place where I could have just said, let me just sort of ride it out and see what happens. But I was hyper ethical. And I said to them, you know, I'm, I'm, I said this person's individual, Greg Bello, I'm really more interested, I think, in this marketing thing. Uh, you just pay me back what my costs were to become a partner of the label and, and off you go and it's yours. And, you know, within a month, one of the artists went platinum. And I'm, you know, I'm at the beginning of a startup, no money, nothing. I'm in debt. I'm living in a crappy apartment. And this guy's suddenly buying homes and motorcycles and the bands are all over the, the, you know, the bands all over the radio and everywhere. And I'm going, man, had I pushed and held on for an extra month, he'd probably, you know, like it would be a different situation here. And again, like it's, it, it, it is things that you can look back and call them regret. I don't, I don't have any regrets. Things worked out lovely for me and I'm, doing fine thank you very much but yeah. i can look back on those and and think like those were moments where i could have pushed i could have tried i could have thought is there another way to solve this problem versus just you know cut and and or or focusing or staying focused and there's nothing wrong with that i mean i don't think anybody listening to this would be like oh man you made a huge mistake or you know i would have done the same thing i just think that there's opportunities and moments that I, i'm able to reflect on where I could have kept going. And, and the easiest one for everybody to understand would be like you're reading a book and you're sort of struggling with it and you're like, oh, yeah. I'm going to put it down. And then you give it one more shot and that happens to just be the page or two. You're like, oh man. And it just turns and it becomes one of the most favorite things you've ever read. And I've been in that situation so much. So, you know, I do agree that if you're reading a book and it's crap, you put it down. There's no time for that. But if you're sort of on the fence and not sure, sometimes pushing through is good. I'll I'll, uh, I'll take this. I love this. I'll take this another way. Um, I will I will say that there have been situations where it's been interpersonal relationships at work or wherever uh, that you know saying hey look there's something here it's worth it let's focus in on this let's let's push through and uh, I'll say that in, at least certainly with uh, with Carnal Path that was a a fundamental decision that changed the direction of the company and 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 that was you know kind of getting through a little of the gunk that might exist uh that is maybe ego getting in the way or what have you and stepping on the other side of that and just saying look i think there's something strong here let's push through so it can you know i love it because i think it could go many different ways and it's a simple simple way of describing yeah well, look, uh, Mitch, those five things are great. And it takes us to, uh, to the end of our podcast. I want to say, listen, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have a lot on the go. So I really appreciate that you shared so openly with our listeners on your five uh, top five things that you wish you would have told your younger Mitch self. If people want to get in touch with you, Six Pixel Separation um, on Twitter, LinkedIn, if they want to reach out. Yeah. I mean, well, th- one, thanks for the time. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, MitchJoel.com is the sort of best place that's redirected to whatever is sort of most pertinent now. Um, any platform, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, it's always Mitch Joel. I'm pretty easy to find and um, happy to connect. Thanks so much, Mitch. And as always, thank you to our listeners. Please listen to our back catalog on Google Play, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on iTunes. And we look forward to you joining us on our next podcast when we'll ask our guests what are the top five things that they wish they know. known.